The following is an at-will presentation. Welcome to The Marrow, conversations with creatives about who they are and why they make what they make. I'm your host, Josh Reebok. Today we are not in our normal space, so if you sense a sound difference in your ears, it's because we are transitioning our studio, and while we could have waited to get in the permanent location where the sound will be absolutely parasitic, I did not want to miss the opportunity to converse with a very, very special guest who is only in town here in New York City for two days, my very own sister, one of the most creative, one of the most intelligent, one of the most... uh, compassionate people i know my very own older sister corbett burick thank you so much for doing this oh no no problem i mean i know know you're here here with your husband and while this could have been a romantic getaway your brother is now driving a wedge into that romance for the next 45 minutes or so but thank you so much not much has changed changed. you've been here before right I've been here to New York, yeah, a long time ago. I was here with a bunch of high school students showing them the town and letting them perform and all that kind of fun stuff. Did you guys do it? Like, what did you do when you were here? You know, when we were here, it was actually right after 9-11. We were here, and um, so it was kind of a strange time to bring high schoolers here, especially because they had just watched all of this take place on TV and then for them to drive through the streets and see it for themselves. We were here to perform, but honestly that became secondary when we saw, when they got to see just, you know, things still smoking and and it was, it was incredible. And obviously you are here, you were here with a bunch of high school students because you have spent so much of your life educating hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people in the arts, everything from theater to dance uh, to vocal training to improv, and we're going to get to all that. But I feel like I feel like I would be missing something personally. I think everybody would if we didn't start by saying uh, and starting with what what it was like before that, like before you got into even your theater background. What was life like growing up? I know what my childhood was like in our same house. As do I. But what was what was what was childhood like for you? You know, uh, childhood for me, I, I've, the only thing I can relate it to, honestly, I've just finished watching, uh, Stranger Things on Netflix. Oh yeah. And you know how in that, in that show, um, this won't be a spoiler alert, I promise. Um, there's kind of the (laughs) real life and then there's the upside down version of life. Yeah. And, uh, I feel like my childhood was kind of like that. There was like this one side of my life that was very, you know, mom and dad creating these pirate adventures where they would make Mm. these maps and bury them in the back backyard and we would all go out and dad would have an eye patch on and wanting us to really love imagination and story so I feel like there was that side of my life and then there was this other side of my life the upside down I guess um where things weren't that pretty because um I mean as you know my our dad was really sick and Mm. and he was a recovering alcoholic and so there was this kind of weird version of life where it was the reality of it and the upside down and I was never sure which one was actually the reality because it was kind of confusing at times but but we had a lot of fun too I mean I remember all the 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 pasted together Halloween costumes (laughs) I think I went as a mummy one year and I wrapped myself entirely in toilet paper it was unpleasant with rain Um, yeah right (laughs) so so I think it was that's that's what I think of I guess having just watched Stranger Things, go watch it on Netflix. It's good. So you you mentioned Dad being sick, and I I don't remember or, or my first memories of like seeing him become a little more brittle. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and starting to break down, I was maybe, um, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But so I don't have a lot of memories before that. Like most of my memories of him are more kind of the splintered health version of dad. Right. But what, what are your memories of him when he was healthy? When he was healthy, I remember him, I mean, he worked a lot, so he was gone a lot, but when he was here and when he was with us, he was really, really present and he was always, you know, going swimming with us and, and doing these really robust kind of American dad sort of things Mm. where he would, you know, pretend to be a sea monster and put seaweed on his head and we would all, (laughs) you know, go running away from him, that kind of thing. So I remember him being this really robust kind of stereotypical American suburban dad on one hand. And then, um, that was all kind of before he got sick. Cause once he got sick, um, he couldn't work as much anyway. And then, then you were kind of left to look at the, all that robustness kind of fall off of him. Yeah. Um, it was hard to watch. It was tragic to watch cause he was this man who, you know, combed his hair every morning and dressed mm-hmm. in a suit and, you know, was the superintendent of schools. And that was like really dramatic and powerful and, <laughs> you know, very, very TV show on one hand. But then as that started to kind of crumble off of him, um, I mean, I remember being young, but I remember watching it and seeing it happen for sure. Do you feel like he instilled a lot of that creativity in you? I mean, through, through these kind of like, I don't know, he, he was sort of his own personal vaudeville routine yes. all the time. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if you remember this or not, but, um, and, and I, you may, I don't even remember the occasion, but when dad came out, um, we were all sitting in the living room, meaning you, me, mom, and then our younger sister, Quinn. And dad came out and he was wearing mom's nightgown. Mm. And he just, he came out and he just thought it was hilarious. And he would, uh, I mean, he would help us build things. He, w- he built this big dock, you know, at a lake at our vacation house. And he would sing and he was in fashion shows and all this mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, but so do you feel like that comprehensively? either through genetics or just life experience bled into your vision of what life could be from a creative standpoint? Well, he was always the storyteller guy. Like whenever we were out, um, with family friends or whatever, he was always the guy yucking it up and telling these really funny stories. And he was the big showman. Mm -hmm. So he always had this, um, this way of telling a good story and making people laugh and working the crowd. And Mm -hmm. I think that in itself made me, really, I think, value comedy and humor. And it mm. also helped me value the art of telling a good story because he was really, really good at that and really good at making us laugh and, and yeah, dressing up in costumes and doing the unexpected. And I think uh, later knowing what he was going through at the time, mm. it always really surprised me that, or maybe it was just like his way of dealing with it and his way of trying to heal a bit was he was always doing these crazy things and always trying to use humor. So I, I don't feel like we knew all the stuff that was going, it's that upside down thing again, like in yeah. stranger things, he had that too, that he had this reality that he was showing us, but then his upside down was, was hard, man. And I don't, I think he was trying to use humor and storytelling to ease, ease the pain of it for him and for everyone. Yeah. Do you feel like you do that? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think I, I think I did that a lot when I, when I was younger, uh, you know, cause I, whatever. But, um, I think I did that a lot 
as a defense mechanism for a long time. Like, cause I saw that that's how dad, like that's how he handled stuff. And he, he always went to humor and always went to the good storytelling as a way of deflecting what was really going on. So I think I, I definitely became a master at doing that. Uh, I feel like now at the phase of life that I'm in, uh, you know, I'm about to turn dot, 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 big 40 yeah. <laughs> and I'm about to turn 40 and I have four little kids. And, you know, at this phase of my life, I don't feel like I'm trying to be funny all the time as yeah. much because I don't have to. Yeah. I think it's more cause I'm, I think I'm at a place where I'm at least, I mean, not perfectly, but trying to more embrace my story and where it's yeah. at instead of feeling like I have to make it funnier or shinier mm-hmm. for somebody else. I don't know. When I, when I think about dad and I, I, I can only think of him or, in some ways reflect on him through me and certainly his motivations for certain, um, habits or choices. Um, his motivations don't necessarily mirror mine, mm-hmm. but when I look at my life, um, I see how so often those things, those choices I made, whether in an attempt to be humorous or even just compelling, uh, I did those not because, uh, it was like this free extension of who I was, mm-hmm. But it was, I felt like I had no value if I wasn't. And these things that in theory um, would kind of emancipate me to connect with people, Mm -hmm. actually, when I look back in moments, kind of became these like leashes that kept me from connecting with people because I felt like, you know, to use the, the phrase you just referred to a moment ago, I felt like I had to be that upside down version of me, Mm. which was such a small part of who I was. And I feel like I'm still like, um, I feel like I'm still trying to go, what's the not compelling version of me? Mm. Or, or how do I, how do I just be like boring? And, and that's not to say that like I'm interesting all the time or even a fraction of the time, but more about giving myself permission to not be great. And not, not going into a conversation, you know, feeling like I need to be awesome. Like even our, uh, you know, the guy that owns at will entertainment, which this show is produced by him and I, him and I were out the other night and he's like, how are you feeling about the show coming out? And you know, I, I think I, pro- I, I probably kind of, uh, massaged the truth mm-hmm. for one or two sips of beer. And then, you know, once I got the third, down of my red stripe or whatever it was, I think I said, well, I'm actually, I'm actually really scared. And, you know, um, he, he turned to me and he was just, you know, about, about what? And, and I didn't want to say it because I, I felt like the, uh, I just felt the weakness, you know, and everybody has like certain weaknesses that they're comfortable with and certain weaknesses that they aren't. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't comfortable saying, I'm afraid of letting you down. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of not being, um, great in your eyes. And so I don't, I don't know if that was, um, if that was in dad, like, I don't know if, um, that was part of what motivated him. I mean, he was charismatic, like you said, and he was endearing and he was tender, but at times I feel like, um, at times I, I wonder if he wasn't chained to that dimension of himself because he didn't necessarily have confidence that he could connect with us apart from that. Well, I can, I mean, I can, I can tell you I've had some of those conversations with dad before he died. Like 
because his his story was so rough. I mean, he was adopted as a child and the woman who was his birth mother, you know, lived down the street uh, from the, the people who adopted him and she wanted to keep him so bad. And But she ended up giving him um, to this couple because she knew that they would have a better life. I mean, even just that start of his story, I think his... I think his value and who he was was so confused. I don't think he, I, w- I would walk in some di- sometimes to his room and he'd be watching Sally Jesse Raphael, if you remember that show. <laughs> I remember this, the red glasses. Yeah, she wore some sweet red glasses. And um, he'd be watching a show where a birth mother and her son would be reunited and and you know the son's now 40 years old and has a whole mm. family and a life and he'd be watching that and just sobbing and I mm. remember walking in and saying it just kind of standing there because I didn't I don't know what to say when you're watching your yeah. your grown father sobbing there and and asking like why don't you want to go find out who she was and he just couldn't I think there was this painful sense of I'm not worth it I don't measure up I somebody didn't want me, even if it was for an okay reason, there's still the, somebody didn't want me. And I don't know what that means then for who I am for the rest of my, something's wrong with who I am. And I think he wrestled with that so long that he chose to have these jobs that put him in positions of power. It was like a big, um, his life was like always proving something to, to, you know, the world that he worked in as a, as a job, but also to, our mother and to us, yeah. I think he was always trying to prove. And like, I think when you're always trying to prove, like it's really hard to, to even know who you are. Cause you, you play this version of yourself mm-hmm. so much that you, I think it starts to, to confuse who you really are. Yeah. I can certainly, <laughs> I, I can, can certainly relate to that. Really, I, mean, I can certainly relate to that. That's why I did theater forever. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. So, so you mentioned that. So like I can look back when, when through my eyes, I look back on our childhood I can see even when we were, you know, in the backyard and putting on these little productions for us and like the two neighboring families around us. And, you know, we're dancing like Michael Jackson doing all these amazing things. But as a kid, it's like when I look at you, I see those early embers of Mm -hmm. a not not just a passion, but a real connection to the arts and to to theater and to uh, performing and all these things. When what is the like, do you have a first memory of when you felt a real congruence between you and theater? I mean, I remember the first time I was in a show. I mean, I, I can look back and I can tell that story, but honestly, like the first the first memory I have of really connecting is when I was in something and it wasn't the actual being in the show part. It was when mom and dad afterwards were, told me how proud they were of me. And I, I think that was, I mean, that's what every kid wants, right? Is for your parents to tell them how proud they are of you. And I remember, um, because our lives were kind of disjointed and all over the place a bit with dad drinking and working all the time. I think the, when your parents notice you in the midst of that chaos and notice something that you've done and kind of say to you, this is something you're good at. Even if it's not initially something you're like in love with, like it, you notice and it speaks to your heart in a different kind of way. So I think for me that 
that validation from mom and dad was like everything because they were so busy and so distracted and living their lives the best they could. And so I remember that. I remember after like a ballet recital where I was made up like, I don't know what, um, I was made up like crazy and I was in this crazy outfit and tap dance. I'm a little hard out. And I, um, but I remember that, like, and I remember dad bringing me flowers afterwards Mm. and, you know, there was something really, really meaningful about that. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, I remember seeing you all the time. I mean, and things from, I mean, what you were in Pollyanna, you you were in the sound of music, you were in Bye Bye Birdie. I mean, you, you always had your, I mean, and that's just on the theater side. I mean, but there was this, uh, really dynamic, you know, singing ability, you, you danced and eventually, I mean, through, I mean, you're talking about memories from, you know, childhood, but eventually this led into you, I mean, teaching these subjects and and like, I mean, so, so talk about that. Like how, how did this kind of transition for you and what, what kind of prompted that? Oh, I, you know, it's funny sitting here in New York and telling the story. Cause I remember being, you know, the, in high school and thinking, oh yeah, like right after I graduate, I'm totally going to like, you know, move to New York and make it big and be on Broadway and it's going to be dope, man. Like I, I remember thinking that cause that was definitely like eighties, early nineties when we all talked like that. Um, but I remember being really, really excited that that was going to be the plan for my life and um because you know when you're in high school you have your plan and you got it all worked out um but so I had that as my plan and like kind of my heart's desire that's what I was going to do and then I was asked to direct and choreograph something with students and it flipped everything on its head for me because I I enjoyed the performing piece I always had I'd done it forever but when I got to direct students and then stand in the back of the auditorium and mm. watch these students on stage, knowing th- what it took for each of them to get up there, because when you're the when you're the director and you're the behind the scenes person, you know the stories of each of those students. You know that this, what they're doing on stage right now, sure is part of the story. But mm-hmm. some of them, what it took for them to even get up there, what they're dealing with in their lives, all those kind of things, I vividly remember standing in the back of an auditorium and thinking this is what I want to do. Like this is way more uh, fulfilling for me to watch them do it than to have me do it. Mm. There was just something about the Mm. them versus me concept that uh, struck a chord with me. And I think it was just knowing how far they had come and what they Mm. had done to get there. And that meant more to me knowing that piece than doing it myself. Where where does that... um... And I, I don't know, I mean, correct me if this term doesn't apply, but um, where does that kind of, you, you have such a heart that kind of champions the underdog mm-hmm. um, and, and champions the arts in general and champions people in general, but especially for the, almost like the person who would be least likely to be up in front of people, like you have such a heart for that. I mean, where did, where did that come from? That's partly the way mom raised us was she was always I mean good gracious she was always fighting somebody's fight and uh (laughs) yelling at somebody um wait hold on let me let me interject this is a key moment I mean okay so I remember I was on my driver's permit okay I mean this is this is is mom championing the little shriveled Harry Potter looking boy behind the wheel, me. <laughs> and that much has changed. We are driving on a highway in Chicago. This is my first time on the highway. Yeah. And I believe I was driving 
a white Isuzu trooper. And I am coming up to this really widespread toll booth mm-hmm. kind of, you know, construction. And there's all these lanes, but there aren't like hard partitions. You just kind of have to pick a lane and go with it. And I don't understand that. So I'm kind of drifting back and forth and waffling in my lane choice. And this semi truck pulls up beside the car and this terrifying looking man, I mean, like straight out of like a Wes Craven movie, rolls down his window <laughs> sticks his hand out the window, gives me the finger, and says, hey, where the F did you get your license? Mom (laughs) rolls down her window and yells back at the man, he doesn't have it yet. (laughs) And Oh my gosh. I mean, I don't know if I've ever felt more compelled just to drive a car into a ravine than (laughs) than I did right then. But it was such a perfect example of of mom, like stepping between like the, the persecution and the person being persecuted in that case, me. Oh yeah. She, she's the person who would be sitting in a, in a sermon in church. And if the, I remember sitting next to her in church and this, this pastor made kind of a sexist joke from the pulpit and mom yells out during the sermon, not funny, not funny. And, and I'm and it was amazing. Cause I, and I remember being embarrassed in those moments, but then later you're like, yeah, that wasn't funny. You yeah, know, like right. at least somebody said something. And that's always who she was. She was always standing up for somebody. Yeah. And I remember one of the first, uh, directing jobs I had. I was going in to be uh, the director at a middle school in literally of a town of very small, maybe a a thousand. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had hired me to be their drama director. And they met with me beforehand and they said, you know, this is kind of the way our drama program works. And oh, just so you know, there's going to be a couple of kids with special needs who want to be in your show you don't, you, you shouldn't probably give them anything. You don't have to have them in, but they'll want to, they'll want to be in it. And I remember thinking this, uh, no, like, and so those two, there were two kids who had down syndrome actually, and who wanted to be in the show. So I cast them and I gave them parts and they had lines and I was, you know, I was like, this, this isn't how I work. And you can't tell me that these people aren't valuable and can't have a part just because mm-hmm. it's more convenient for you. <laughs> So I remember that, I mean, being the big deal for me when um, just that idea of, yeah, sticking up for the little guy and for the person who's who needs a leg up in the world, because we all need that at some point. Well, and, and uh, I mean, obviously that would become a fairly significant, though you didn't know it at the time, right. a pretty significant foreshadowing in your life, because after, I don't know, I mean, decades where you were leveraging not only uh, your creativity, but your your life's work, I mean, if that's what you want to call it, towards theater. Then you, you get around 30, 31 years old, and all of a sudden, life starts to bend in a way that you didn't foresee with the birth of your first child. And th- this is like one of my... This is like one of my one of my favorite stories, but obviously for everyone listening, they may not have heard it before. So can you please just t- talk about that? Talk about uh, that bend in the road for you and when when your first son Cyrus was was born. 
You know, Cyrus came at a time right after. So our our father passed away after a long debilitating. He'd had a heart transplant. It had never kind of turned around for him. He he passed away, and then literally seventy days later, our mom died out of nowhere, unexpectedly. And so after that happened, I feel like I was searching for something good and kind of saying, you know, give me some, give me something good. Give me something I can cling to. And, uh, and I got pregnant and I remember thinking, you know, obviously you and I don't have all these like aunts and uncles and cousins. Like once mom and dad died, it was you, me and our sister Quinn. Uh, so it was kind of like we were down a few. And so we were thinking, (laughs) Uh, you know, let's start a family and let's, let's build our numbers back up. Uh, but so this, when we got pregnant, I remember thinking like, this is going to be the thing that's going to make it all okay and going to make everything better. And, uh, and there were, you know, I, I teach at this high school in Chicago and, um, and there were a lot of other people who were pregnant at the same time. And, So it was like this surge of momentum and everyone's kind of moving. We were all pregnant at the same time, all due around the same time. And I remember thinking like, this is really going to be it where, where the story takes finally a good turn after all this sorrow and pain that we've kind of been through with losing our parents and everything else. And I remember, oh gosh, all of my kids have been born on an opening night as a way of upstaging me in some way. <laughs> Every single one of them have been born on an opening night of one of my productions. Uh, I kid you not. So Cyrus, um, he was, he came a month early on, um, opening night of, of a show I was doing. And I remember them saying, you got to go to the hospital now. He's, he's, he's not growing. You got to, he's got to come now. And this is a month early. And I remember being really nervous and we went to the hospital and, and he was born and he was really tiny. And I remember, but I, you know, I was, I was in a new mom. I didn't, I didn't know any different. I had nothing to compare him to. So to me, he looked like this perfect squishy little <laughs> scrawny chicken. And he was, you know, four pounds and really tiny. And I'm really glad that that's how he came into the world is I had, um, a couple of days with him where words, um, where we where we didn't know anything else, just this new little baby was ours. And so, you know, we named him Cyrus and we were holding him. And, and then a couple days later, the doctor came in and said, um, I need to talk to you. I think there's something going on with Cyrus genetically. And I remember thinking, you've got to be wrong. Like this isn't, this isn't, this isn't fair. First of all, because Mm. after everything else I've been through, I can't have another thing. This is too much. And the doctor said, we, you know, it's possible that it could be a couple of different syndromes that he might have. And one of the syndromes that they described to us was, you know, he would maybe last for a year. And, uh, and if that, if we were lucky and the other one he said was down syndrome and it's interesting when that's the two options that you're given because it, then you start to pray, man, God, I hope it's Down syndrome, mm. um, which is not something I think most parents are praying for is that their kid has Down syndrome in that moment. But I sure did because I, you know, if those are my two options, Down syndrome looks pretty awesome now. Mm. And so when he came in to tell us that, you know, they did some genetic testing on him. 
it was ironic because, you know, in those first days when your baby is born, you spend all this time saying, oh, look, honey, he has, he has your eyes or his toes look yeah. just like yours. And <laughs> the doctor comes in and says, I'm holding Cyrus in my arms, this little four pound guy in the NICU. Um, and I'm holding him and he says, yeah, he has, he has Down syndrome. And I said, well, how, how do you know? And he said, well, his eyes and his toes. And I'm like, okay, well, got it. I got which features I've got. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, I remember being really grateful that I, I didn't know beforehand. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I went through 24 hours of the dark night of my soul, you know, where, where I thought this was kind of the the thing that was going to change my life in the most negative way possible, where I was going to have to quit my job because even I, you know, I'd worked with people with, with Down syndrome and with special needs before, but when it becomes your own child, I remember thinking, but now my whole life, I mean, he won't be able to do this, 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 and this. And that was my first reaction to it Hmm. is total grief and, uh, grief for the, the life that you want for your child. You're not going to have that same looking life for him anymore. But at the same time, I remember, you know, it was like 24 hours of, I mean, I just, I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't, all I could do is cry in my hospital bed. Uh, and he was down in the NICU and I, I had to make the decision to go down there. And I was scared to go down there. Cause I thought, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like what our father went through being adopted. He always felt like he was somehow a disappointment. And I didn't want to go down there and pick up the Cyrus in my arms and have him somehow feel that I was disappointed mm-hmm. in who he was and what, what he was going to become. And, um, but you know, I, they told me when he was in my arms and it was this, uh, it was this moment of, you know what, we're just gonna, we're, we're, we're gonna walk one, one foot in front of the other and figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I was there for a portion of that, yeah. obviously. And, and, you know, the uncle perspective <laughs> is obviously a few steps removed. And so I, I was, uh, I mean, I was scared. I was really mm-hmm. scared, but I was also, and, and you kind of mentioned it before. I think it was, it's one of, um, it's one of the few times when I, when I realized when an incident in life revealed to me a perspective or belief that I didn't even know I had. And you Mm. mentioned this before, but I think that moment revealed to me that I believed that life is fair. Mm -hmm. On the heels of mom and dad dying, there was something in me that thought, well, now the cosmic scales have to be balanced. Now, after these negative things have happened, now there has to be kind of a proverbial pot of gold set on the other side to balance it. Mm-hmm. And, and though I can verbalize that and go, well, that's a, like, that's absurd. I mean, look at the world. Of course it doesn't work that way, but so much of my indignation in that moment, other than just fear for his own life, there was this kind of shell of indignation in me, this real anger that I thought was kind of like this righteous anger mm-hmm. that was based on the fact that life wasn't turning out the way I thought life had promised to. Well, and I, I remember saying when I was laying in that hospital bed after they told me, I remember saying, why couldn't it have been one of the other people who was pregnant? Why mm-hmm. did this happen to me? Mm-hmm. I've already had enough stuff come my way in the last, you know, year or two. Like, can it be somebody else? Why does yeah. this have to be me that you've picked for this? Like, mm-hmm. this is so unfair, like you said. 
And yeah, I think I've always had that, you know, I, it's funny because, uh, right before I went to, right before our mom and dad died, right before Cyrus was born, I had spent a lot of time in Zambia and, uh, in Africa with students and kind of working with this village and bringing them water and all these things. And, uh, and I remember being there and I feel like even though I did feel like it was unfair what had happened with our parents and with Cyrus being born with Down syndrome, there was also though, because I had been and spent time with this village of people, there was also this sense of, but, but what's fair, you know, like, mm. cause when you're spending all this time with people who have no water, no access to education, where AIDS has decimated so much of their mm. village, uh, and you're meeting all these, these, you know, kids who have no parents because of AIDS or who, 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 whose lives have been turned completely upside down. You're kind of sitting there going, it, it becomes less of why me and more why not me? Mm-hmm. Because it, it happens mm-hmm. so many places in other mm-hmm. parts of the world. But I think you're right in in our kind of culture of privilege that we have here. I think mm-hmm. there is that sense of life should be fair and life should be, uh, we should be able to plan it how we want it. Yeah. Well, and, and, the, and the reality that we can, we can hold perspectives that we don't even know we have until yeah. like an event holds up the mirror. Yep. I, I'm like, uh, of, of course, I, I have such like a... Um, I don't know, I guess you'd call it an addictive personality when I find something I like. Mm-hmm. Like if I find the song that I like, I'll listen to it for like a week straight mm-hmm. or something. But I'm now like on my fourth or fifth time through Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I just crossed the threshold where uh, Walt, Walter White, kind of the primary, depending upon your perspective, protagonist or antagonist in the story, whatever, um, he has just found out that his lung cancer is in remission. And the tumor, the mass in his lung has shrunk by like 80, 90%, something like that. And so they're having this, uh, like this celebration at his house, family, friends, cake, champagne, everyone's celebrating. And finally, uh, you know, after a bunch of glasses being clinked against spoons, they say, Walt, oh, you got to give a speech. And he stands there and he kind of has this very, um, just downtrodden energy to him. And he he looks at everyone and he says, when I first found out I got cancer, my question was, why me? And then everyone's kind of waiting for the uptick. Mm -hmm. And he goes, and then when I sat in the doctor's office yesterday and I found out my tumor had shrunk by 90%, I asked the same question. And there's something like there's a real gravity in that moment. It's like when good things happen, I don't tend to go, why me? I'm just like, of course me. And then when bad things happen, I'm like, why me? You know, but, but, and, and, and I think what's so for, for me, I mean, as your, your, uh, you know, your, your sibling and your friend, I mean, I think one of the things that's been so inspiring for me and observing you and, and your husband, who is also in the room, by the way, his name is, is not just like this kind of like Wizard of Oz behind the curtain man. I mean, his name is, his name is Josh and he too is here. Um, but amongst many things, part of what's been so inspiring. Um, is to see how y'all have like, I mean, embraced the good and the bad. And maybe the term would be leaned in to not only Cyrus's life, but how Cyrus might change your life and the life y'all were envisioning for yourself. And, and, And it's funny because when we were talking at the beginning of the show and we were like, who are the, who are the kinds of guests? Who are the kinds of people we want to talk to? One of the reasons I was so eager to have you on here is because in my opinion, too often we, 
we kind of talk about creativity or artistry in this very monolithic way. And it's like, this is what it means to be creative. And we think of an actor or a writer or a musician or a dancer or a painter. Instead of going, yeah, but then there's also creating businesses, there's creating relationships, there's creating families, there's creating good in the world. And I wanted to have you on because of the way that you and, and your husband, Josh, really through, in part through Cyrus, have embraced that and created this incredible family when you could have almost battened down the hatches and just gone, all right, that's it. I'm going to go and do something else. But so, so Cyrus is born. Mm-hmm. He has Down syndrome. And then the creative process of your family, like that's almost like the genesis of it all. So what happens after that? Well, so we have Cyrus and uh, a couple years later, well, I should back up. Uh, so after Cyrus is born, about two months later, I'm looking around because I have no idea what I'm doing. Number one, I've never been a mom. Number two, I have a child now with Down syndrome. My mother is not around. So in terms of resources on who I'm supposed to talk to, I went straight to Google. Yeah, you're watching um, Full House. Oh, and, yeah. You know, um, what did Danny Tanner do? <laughs> exactly. Silver spoons. Let's rock it. Um, so uh, I... Uh, yeah, so I, I started researching around, like, what do you do with a baby with Down syndrome? Yeah. How do I take care of him? Because I didn't know anybody mm-hmm. who had um, anyone with a baby with Down syndrome. So I'm looking around, and I come across, oh, gosh, the the thing that would kind of just change my perspective about who Cyrus was and what a gift he was for us. And essentially, I, I stumbled across... Um, who would become our second son. Uh, I saw the picture of a little boy with Down syndrome whose name was Vlad, and which already sounds awesome. His name's Vladislav. <laughs> um, he's from Ukraine. And uh, so I see this picture of him, and he's a couple years older than Cyrus. And I see him, and I read about what, what his situation is. And essentially the deal is that if you are a child born with special needs in um in a lot of countries, but I mean, obviously we're talking about Ukraine. Uh, he, if you're, if you're born with, with special needs, you're given up at birth. You're told as a parent, like you can't, you won't be able to do this. He'll never walk. He'll never talk. He can't be educated. Plus besides there's no resources. So you're told, give the child up. So he, he had been given up and, and been living in an orphanage and, uh, the essential story of his life was going to be that you're in the orphanage until you turn four. And at the age of four, if you've not been adopted by anyone, you get transferred to an adult mental institution for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life. And just those words, even of themselves, like I don't even, I remember thinking he's four. So Mm -hmm. he's going to go live the rest of his days with adult men in an institution who will Mm -hmm. never get out. And I looked over at Cyrus, who's asleep, you know, over mm. on the on the couch, all dainty and soft and new, you know, and he's sleeping. And I, it was like, you know, in the movies when they have that like zoom in shot on your face. And yeah. I, I remember thinking, if I had been born in Ukraine, that's what they would have told me when Cyrus was in my arms. Mm. You can't do this. Mm. Give him away. And I, I just. And here he was, you know, sleeping on the couch. And I, I couldn't imagine that 
I mean, you know, you hear those stories all the time of like, well, life circumstances are so different in another place. But like, this was me being like, I, this would be my life. This would be Cyrus's mm-hmm. life. This little boy here, Vlad, this would be Cyrus. Mm-hmm. It would be his picture on this little website. And he would be the one in the orphanage. That would be the story. Mm-hmm. And, oh gosh, I just, I sat there and mourned, you mm-hmm. know, that, that that's, what happens and that's what parents are told and that's what lives are, how lives are valued meaning not valued. And I just, Oh gosh, it broke my heart. Mm-hmm. And, um, I saw his picture again, uh, you know, a, a second time. And, and again, I had that movie moment where it like all rushes in towards you. And I thought this kid is our son. Hmm. And, you know, Josh and I had been thinking, Josh and I had been thinking about starting, not you, Josh, obviously, you're my yeah. brother. It all just got awkward. Right. <laughs> um, my husband, Josh, and I had been thinking about having a second child. And I went to him and said, I think you know, this kid here, Vlad, Vladislav, hmm. is a Burek. I think he's ours. And that kind of set in motion this course of, we're going to go get him. We're going to go to Ukraine. And, and it's not like you just go get him. There's, there's yeah. mounds and mounds of paperwork. There's mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. But I, I remember saying, this is, this is what we're supposed to do. And mm-hmm. after doing all the paperwork and in the midst of it all, like we decided to adopt Vlad and a month, a month or two later, I got pregnant with our third, which out of all the countries, Ukraine is one country you can actually adopt while you're pregnant, mm-hmm. though. I don't necessarily yeah. recommend it. It's a little nuts, <laughs> but, um, as we went through all the paperwork, I'm now pregnant. We've got Cyrus and we get on a plane to Ukraine. I'm eight months pregnant at the time, which is mm. kind of crazy in itself. And, you know, I'm in my head, I'm thinking, you know, depending on how long this is going to take for this adoption, I may be on the side of the road with a babushka yelling at me to push <laughs> while I'm in the field <laughs> yeah. somewhere. And Josh is trying to flag down, you know, someone to take me to a hospital. So, uh, it was a little terrifying and, uh, but we, we went to Ukraine and we, um, I just remember thinking, you know, this is, this is this kid's life and it would be Cyrus's and, yeah. and we can do something about that. Mm. It doesn't have to be that way. We can't do that for everyone, but we can mm. do that for this one child. We can change it. Now, as all this is going on, I mean, cause I, I remember getting the phone call <laughs> when you, when you telling me that, that this was kind of, you know, what you and Josh were planning on mm. and, there was, I mean, you know, hopefully I only conveyed excitement and support on the phone, but there was definitely, you know, the shadow version of me in the back of my head going, what is the matter with you? <laughs> like, there's this thing in the back of my head going, like, why, like, are you sure you want to do this? Mm-hmm. And, and, and for me, hopefully that came from, um, a place of thinking about you. And, mm-hmm. um, but, but I mean, did you have doubts? Did you have fears did did people say those kinds of things to you i i mean i had all of those things uh when i when i wanted to adopt him i i definitely thought i've got to be crazy like i'm there, there aren't typically families that have two kids with down syndrome we yeah. already have one i mean i remember uh you know someone saying well what do you what, you're never going to be able to have your life back you know, cause most kids, you know, it's at a certain point move yeah. out of the house and, mm-hmm. and, uh, so yeah, I had people that, that definitely thought we were crazy. I thought we were crazy multiple times when our, when I got pregnant, I mm-hmm. thought, 
is this the sign we're not supposed to do this? Like, should we give up and maybe go later? Or I, Mm. you know, I, I definitely had doubts that I could do it like as a parent. I mean, and even in Ukraine, that was the, that was the anthem there was, Mm. are you sure you can do this? And Mm. are you sure you want this child? We have lots of other healthy children. Why would you pick this child? Mm. And, you know, I can't, on some level, I can't explain why that was what happened. Like, it's Mm. not something it was, uh, I mean, in a, maybe it sounds cliche, but it was a heart decision. It was, a. it was a, this is my son decision. Mm. I don't, I can't explain it other than that. You you know, what's so interesting though is, I mean, everything that you're saying is interesting, (laughs) but, um, but, but in all the conversations I get to have here, with people who who feel this like kind of um indescribable connection to whatever it is whether that's music or acting or whatever words at some point fail them and if you ask someone why do you do this they just go i don't i don't i don't know i just it, it's almost like they just know that there is this kind of symmetry and this like intended connection between them and this thing that drives them to it. And it's like, Oh, I don't know, you know, but it, but it's like, that's like enough. That's like enough to propel them forward. Yeah. I think for me it was, uh, I don't know why, but I have to. And I had felt like that before about, you know, creative projects like writing or, or something I was directing. But, uh, with this, I, um, I mean, I, I vividly remember sitting, being in a sleeper car train uh, the night before we were supposed to meet Vlad for the very first time, and we're riding out into rural Ukraine. Mm. It's like going back in time. Like you're looking mm. at little these little tiny houses in the middle of fields, and mm. I'm eight months pregnant. I'm l- trying desperately to sleep on this very skinny, tiny, you know, bed that's inside the the train it's super super loud you can't even imagine it sounds like a jackhammer the entire Mm. time my husband's asleep in one of the beds and cyrus is asleep as well because we brought him with which is also you're not supposed to do that i guess because (laughs) they don't you don't ever see people with disabilities around um but uh i remember being in that bed and i can't sleep partially because i'm so nervous and excited to meet Vlad partially because I'm eight months pregnant and can't get comfortable and it's so loud, but also Mm. because I could not, I was, I think I was just so overcome by what my story was in that moment. It was the Mm. intersection of, I lost both my parents. I have a child with down syndrome. I'm pregnant with another one and I'm riding out (laughs) in on a train in rural, rural Ukraine to meet my new son. Hmm. who also has Down syndrome and, and, and uh, what am I doing? Like, I remember thinking this is, this is crazy. Um, but I think a lot of life is spent in the crazy, you know, like Hmm. most of, most of life is, is done like that. Um, and I, I, I knew too that, you know, at some point you have to kind of take who you are and leverage it. Hmm. I mean, that's something I tell my, improv students all the time, you know, when you're, when you're in an improv scene, 
you know, kids are always saying, I just didn't know what to, to do in this moment. I didn't mm. know what to say. And I said, well, what were you feeling? I was feeling really anxious. Well, mm. use that, like yeah. leverage that, use that, have your character then be anxious. Right. Like yeah. all, all you have is you yeah. like in yeah. that moment. So leverage it. Ray, and, you, you know, Ray, Ray Bradbury, yeah. you know, the author, he says, your intuition knows what to write. Hmm. So just get out of the way. I mean, that's a, that's a paraphrase, but essentially what he's saying is like, stop analyzing, Mm -hmm. stop trying to make yourself feel a certain way. Your intuition knows. So just kind of follow that lead. Yeah. And I, you know, we obviously got there and we, we met him and he was the tiniest little, little thing and scared out of his mind. And, Mm. and I was scared too. And, and, you know, we brought him home. I remember seeing, correct me if I'm wrong, this may be one of those fragmented memories in my head that's not correct, but I remember seeing, I think, a picture of Vlad mm-hmm. at the orphanage in Ukraine inside kind of one of those indoor plastic playhouses, and he's peeking his you know, little blonde head out through one of the windows, and he has like a little black eye, mm-hmm. and it's like simultaneously the most like... Uh, gripping adorable and devastating photographs all at the same time yeah he uh i mean his life wasn't easy yeah it still isn't easy adoption is not easy is your life easy no (laughs) (laughs) i have obviously cyrus and vlad and then whitman came along whitman came along literally a few weeks right after we brought home Vlad. So it was like mm. having twins, but mm-hmm. one was Ukrainian and almost four and yeah. one's a newborn on uh, this American kid, you know? So it was like having twins all of a sudden. And then we mm. later on had a, have now we have a little girl as well, Ani. And, uh, you know, our life's not easy. Vlad's, Vlad's life isn't easy. Vlad, mm. uh, his start in life and the beginnings of what his life were, uh, that's hard to overcome. It's like, and he, he struggles on a day-to-day basis, but he's also hilarious. And, you know, he's nine now. So he's been part of our family for five years and he can tell a mean butt joke. Um, so that's pretty (laughs) awesome. He can, (laughs) you know, but he's in school and he's reading and he's writing and he's doing all those things and he's playing with his, his siblings and, but it's not easy. Adoption isn't easy. It's, you know, it's romanticized a lot and it looks like it's Mm -hmm. this beautiful story of, you know, these two people rushing in to rescue this child. And then once you bring them home, then they're so excited and grateful that, uh, that it's only going to be, you know, roses and unicorns from then on. But it, uh, it's hard. His, he has a lot still to overcome. He's Mm -hmm. afraid still. Um, it's hard, but it's, uh, but it's worth it. And you were saying earlier that Cyrus, who he was, you know, that, I mean, we wouldn't have Vlad if Cyrus didn't have Down syndrome, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Because him having it while devastating in the moment and surely changing the course of the, the plan for mm-hmm. our life, um, it also changed the story of Vlad's life and where he was going. There's a, uh, there's a, a principle in, in writing and I'll say this and maybe it'll relate. And if not, you know, just write in and tell me how much it didn't. But, um, <laughs> but the principle goes something like sometimes you have to become someone else in order to tell a certain story. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes the person you are isn't ready. You have to change or mm-hmm. be changed to become the person who can write it. Mm-hmm. 
And when I, when I think about, you know, the, hearing you say this and hearing you say what you just did, it's almost like Cyrus changed you and your husband into the people you needed to become in order to kind of engage the subsequent chapters of your story that were coming. Oh yeah. I think, uh, who Cyrus is. I mean, him having Down syndrome, it's ironic when you, when you get that diagnosis, you think that's who he now is. He's Mm -hmm. the syndrome. He's Down syndrome. Like, but that just ends up being this little part of who he is, but it opens up, uh, who you are and makes you really look at what do I think about disability? What do I really value about life? Who do I really think is deserving and worth it? And, um, it does, it kind of changes your perspective. And for me with Cyrus, I feel like I, you know, I was wanting him to be the healing balm of my life after going through the loss of our parents. And I thought he was going to be the answer and he was, but just not the answer I thought he was going to be. Hmm. Um, he was the answer. I mean, he's this, uh, he's a free spirit. He likes to do whatever the heck he wants and not when I tell him to. But he, uh, there's a, you know, there's a this idea that people at Down are happy all the time. They are not. Um, or that they're <laughs> friendly and want to hug people all the time. They also do not. Um, but he is this person who pushes me all the time to think about not only who he is, but also who I am and and who do I want to be? And, you know, I, um, I do a little bit of writing and I remember, uh, I had, uh, I had put up something. I, I do this micro blog and, um, which is amazing by the way. Thank you. Um, I had written something and, uh, and I had had a picture of Cyrus in it and I had somebody write, um, effing retard. Your kid looks like mm. an effing retard on it. Mm. And I remember initially being like, you know, you're, I, I, okay. Uh, you're, you're missing out. Like you, Mm. this is your perspective on who he is. And, Mm. and I don't really feel mad back at you. I just feel really sorry because you don't realize what you are missing out Mm. on by thinking that that's who he is. Mm. But also I remember thinking, so then I wrote this piece about, um, the use of the word retard. Fine. I wrote this, but I, and I talk in there about how, you know, it's our job to like open our arms, to be able to embrace all the differences that people have. Mm -hmm. But I can only say that if I'm willing to then open my arms and embrace not just people with down syndrome, but people who live differently than me and believe differently than I do, you know, like Mm -hmm. I can't just get on my soapbox about this it has to be a soapbox for all, you know, mm. like, cause I can't say it's okay to do this, but not, I, that's at least how I feel about it. And, mm. uh, so having a child with a, with a disability has made me really look at how do I think about a lot of different people, mm. not just people with down syndrome. And that to me has been one of the most, you know, I mean, it's hard to look at yourself and discover all the things that you're mm. completely, you know, prejudiced about or how you're labeling people or how you're afraid of people. Um, but this little guy with down syndrome, ironically is the person who's forced me to really look at that. Hmm. Uh, and it's opened up a world of people that I never would have known before. Hmm. And, uh, and I remember, you know, we took, um, a bunch of our students to, to perform, to do an improv and dance show at a, a home for people with, 
you know, developmental disabilities, which let me tell you is a trip when you go to, <laughs> to perform the suggestions you get for improv are amazing. Um, but, uh, <laughs> everything, when you're asking for a quote, you know, you'll get everything from, you know, uh, I'll be back or you get yeah. rock. And I'm like, we'll take rock. I like that. Um, so Best that's, and that's ever. awesome. I know. Excellent. <laughs> So we're performing at this place and all these high schoolers are performing for these, you know, adults with developmental disabilities. And after the show, I remember this kid saying to me, this is right before I'm about to adopt Vlad. This high schooler says, I don't understand why they have to have this. Like why it's so unfair. And it's again, that use of that phrase, it's unfair. Mm. Why his question to me was, why would God let someone have this? And I remember being like, okay, here's, here's the moment, you know, you got to answer this. And, uh, I remember saying to him, you know, if my son didn't have it, this boy Vlad wouldn't have the story that he's going to get to have. So, Hmm. you know, it's, it's, uh, to use a phrase that I've heard you say before, it's your, you talk about the idea of, um, you're the thing that's like the worst thing that's ever happened to you. I think you mm. call it like your unfair advantage. Your unfair advantage. And it's the, um, that's Cyrus's unfair advantage. Yeah. She has Down syndrome. It's unfair, but it's an advantage. It's a huge advantage for me, and it's mm. a huge advantage for Vlad. Yeah. And it's becoming mm. a huge advantage for my other two kids. That's mm. the question I get a lot is, what does it do to your other children that you have two with disabilities? You must not be able to pay a lot of attention to them because the other ones have so many needs. And, you know, and I, I hear that and there's, there's an element of truth to that. Cyrus and Vlad have a lot of needs. That's true. They have, they need more things on a daily basis, but at the same time, the fact that they have special needs, which I always think is a funny phrase. I'm like, what's, what's special about this? It, yeah. It's kind of sucks sometimes, <laughs> but okay. Special. Um, but the fact that they have a disability is shaping who my son Whitman and who my, who my daughter Ani are going to be. They're going to hopefully from having them as their brothers, they're going to become people who are more compassionate, bigger Mm. embracers of, Mm. of people who are unlike them. Um, and they're going to be a voice for people who need a voice and who don't have a voice. And yeah, that's, it's going to change and shape them and probably in the best possible ways Mm. I'm hoping, Mm. um, cause it's done that for us. Well, and I certainly, I suppose to maybe bring this full circle, I certainly see that same sort of imaginative bonkers environment that that dad and and mom too um you know to their credit and to their wonder uh invited into our home and still in our home every time i am in your home i i I mean i see that same thing in a really amazing way that that belief that creativity and imagination is one of the greatest wasted resources and to see um you and josh cultivating that in your house amongst those amazing kids is is a is really amazing. Well, and I think the, you know, what I, what I tell people when they ask me what it's like to live in our house and I'm like, it's, it's like what it is to live in anybody's house. Like we don't, we don't treat our two, two with Down syndrome any differently mm-hmm. than we treat anybody else. We, they all play with swords and capes and, uh, there's always somebody jumping off of a couch somewhere and, and it looks like it looks like a, a typical normal family in mm. my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's, we do a lot of creative stuff in there and we're always, there's always some weird story being told and some weird creative <laughs> energy flowing through. Um, but that's the thing. Um, 
you know, that gets us through a lot. The, 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 when you put on Justin Timberlake's dance song and your boys with Down syndrome are jamming (laughs) out and so is everybody else. Like, yeah, that's, it's that resource you're talking about, about creativity. They thrive on, all of my kids thrive on the arts in our house. Well, I suppose in a lot of ways, love is the greatest form of, of creativity you know, and love is the greatest form of imagination. But I have, I have one more question for you. Okay. Then I'll let you get back to your romantic getaway with romantic. your husband that I have completely, <laughs> completely ruined. Um, wow. My last question is if you could go back, because, you know, this, you know, over the course of your life, you said uh, you're, you know, about to, uh, about to turn 40. Um, but through a life of, a lifetime of creativity that you have lived, if you could go back to, um, like the 30 year old version of yourself right before this particular family component to your creativity and artistry began. If you could go back to that version of yourself and tell her one thing, what would you tell her? I would, I would probably tell her, uh, to, to allow herself to be free because I tend to be a person who, gosh, my, my anxiety is like a, it's like a noose sometimes, yeah. you know, like mm. I get really, I tend to, because I'm a storyteller on the stage and I, and I write, like I tend to look so far into the future cause I know what I want my story mm-hmm. to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always looking way down the pike at, um, you know, if I, if I make this decision, how does it impact this? And will I get there? Mm. Uh, you know, cause when I'm doing a, a a show of some sort, I know in my head visually what I want it to look like in the end. And then Mm -hmm. I just work all the pieces out to get to that visual image that I'm going for. And I think, um, if I was to go back, I would say you're free. Mm. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about how it's all gonna, how it's all gonna turn out. Um, cause that's part of the excitement and that's part of the, the joy of it. I think I'm, I mean, I'm a self-proclaimed control freak. That's why I'm a director, because you get to direct <laughs> some story, even if not your own. So you feel sort of in control. But uh, because I because I do that for a living, you know, like I want to constantly direct and guide and control all of the pieces. And I want to know what the end piece looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but freeing myself up from, I don't know what the story is going to look like. That's been hammered into me for Mm. the last decade Mm. of my life is I don't know. And, and there's great freedom in the not knowing. Take your hands off the cosmic chessboard. Ah, uh, yes. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna do a, a creepy Carrie Underwood. Jesus, take the wheel oh. moment where you're gonna be like, take your hands off I could the have, wheel. I could have thrown that down. <laughs> Holy. Creepy. I mean, not creepy because I don't like Carrie Underwood. But if you were gonna sing it, I was gonna be like, wow, this is this got. Isn't that Leanne Rhymes? Who sings that? Carrie Underwood sings "Jesus Take the Wheel." Does she? At least she does a version of I just it. Maybe Leanne Leanne, I just assume Leanne Rhymes sings every country song. Well, that's true. <laughs> she might. She probably has. Her or Dolly Parton, one of the two. Corbett, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. I love you so much. I'm so uh, so proud of you. Your creativity, your family is so inspiring. Um, thank you for doing this. What what's? How can people find your? your microblog that's the term yeah my my microblog is on instagram it's just at corbett burick so it's c-o-r-b-e-t-t-b-u-r-i-c-k that's my handle awesome thank you so much for being here corbett i love you
I'm Missy Modell. Listen to That One Song, conversations with people about the music that has marked their lives every Thursday on At Will Radio. That One Song.